come under the authority of your words together this morning. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would cultivate our hearts to receive it. Lord, these are such rich words, and I pray, O oh Lord, that we would hear them correctly and fruitfully, that your Spirit would be at work in us, O oh Lord, to be transformed and changed by these sacred and holy and precious words of Jesus. Oh, Lord, may they bear fruit in our lives that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. These are some of the, uh, I think, uh, richest and, and most deeply theological words in, in Scripture. I could do months of sermons only on this, this text, on John 6. I could spend a year easily in John 6. Um, and I, I don't have the luxury of doing that, so I've, I've tried to, to, to take, I mean, each phrase is just packed with so much, and I've had to do more of a, a cursory or more of an overview, kind of a treatment of it, because we have other I am statements to get through uh, before Easter. And so uh, that was my frustration this week, is like, man, every, I'd like to linger on every single phrase, but we just couldn't do that. So it's more of an, of an overview, and if you want uh, some more uh, in-depth study, I encourage you to, to read it and study these verses on your own. But if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, John chapter 6, verses 25 to 40. So a crowd has been uh, uh, following Jesus and uh, trying to uh, get his attention and seek after him. And John says in verse 25, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You may be seated. I watched a, a presentation recently about, about bread. And, and the main 
point, the main idea, the main message of that presentation is that the, the bread that we are eating, the bread that we find that, you, you know, that is uh, sliced and, and bagged and stocked on the shelves in our supermarkets, the, the bread we're eating is not the kind of bread that we, we should be eating. The bread we typically buy, like we see here, uh, is bread that has been, has been so stripped of so many of the essential uh, nutrients and health benefits of, of real grain that it's really not bread at all. And not only does this processed bread fail to satisfy, but in many ways it is detrimental to our health. If you want to change the way you think about bread and, and, and uh, never want to eat the bread that you typically eat again, I would encourage you to watch that presentation. And what it did, at least one of the things it did for me, is it left me longing for a kind of bread that is truly satisfying. And whether we realize it or not, that, that this same kind of longing exists in our spiritual lives. Uh, that, that theme of bread is woven throughout so much of Scripture, and there's a reason for that, because, because it is such a fitting description of our spiritual lives. We have been made with a spiritual craving for that which truly satisfies. And until we find it, we try to fill that craving with the spiritual equivalent of white wonder bread. And so we go from one earthly thing to the next, chasing that ever-elusive goal of satisfaction, but we never find it. And the more we eat of this white bread of futility, the more dissatisfied we become. In our text this morning, Jesus invites us to come away from all of those breads that fail to satisfy and to find the, the one that truly does. Now, to get the most out of uh, Jesus' teaching in these verses, we, we really have to understand uh, the, the background or the context in which these words are spoken. So let me just sort of set this up and frame it for you a little bit before we dive into the teaching itself. So at this point in John's gospel, a great crowd of people is following after Jesus because they have seen the, the miraculous signs and the wonders and the, 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 the miracles that he has done, changing the water into wine at Cana clearing the, the temple courts, telling a Samaritan woman about everything she ever did. And she goes and says, man, you see this guy. He's told me everything that I ever, he must be some great kind of a, a prophet. Retrieving an official's son from the grip of death and healing a man who'd been crippled for 38 years. And he gets up and he starts running around the temple court saying, praising God for this healing that Jesus gave. And so there's a great crowd of people at this point uh, uh, early in John's gospel clamoring after Jesus. And John tells us in the first part of chapter 6 that Jesus performed another great miracle for them. One of the most uh, familiar and well-known miracles that's recorded in all four of the gospels. A great multitude had gathered on the mountainside, a multitude of 5,000 men plus women and children, and they had come to him on this mountainside and they didn't have any food to eat. And he's been teaching and the day is dragging on and they're getting hungry and so what are they going to do and Jesus took a, a boy's lunch which consisted of only five little cakes of bread and two small fish and out of that little lunch he fed the entire crowd he multiplied the bread and the fish so that all who were there had more than enough to eat and they ate to their they were fully satisfied and their bellies were full and the disciples even gathered 12 baskets of leftovers. 
And having witnessed the sign and, the filling, and filling their bellies with this bread, John says that the same crowd that uh, uh, recognized something special in Jesus, and they wanted to make him king by force. Man, we'd like somebody like that to be our leader. Let's make him king. And so Jesus withdrew from the crowd, and he crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to Capernaum. And now this same crowd that had eaten the bread on the mountainside finds, uh, they want to know where Jesus went. As they're looking for him, they couldn't find him, and they, they crossed the sea, and there they find him again in Capernaum. And it's there that Jesus engages them in a dialogue of profound significance, which is what we find in our text this morning. And so his teaching in these verses, you maybe didn't pick up on it as, as we read them, but uh, his teaching really hangs on three questions and one request from the crowd. And so we're just going to walk through the text that way. We're going to order our, our thinking along those lines. And so Jesus' uh, instruction hang on these three questions from the crowd followed by one request. So his teaching begins in response to the crowd's first question. John says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Which is a little bit of a strange question to ask. It might be, seem like more likely to ask, how did you get here? Because they were confused about the boats. They didn't know how he got to the other side. He actually had walked on water. But they asked, when did you get here? And I think Jesus sees beyond their question because what they're really wanting is they're so hungry for Jesus. They're clamoring after him. They're interested in him. They're fascinated by him. So Jesus sees beyond their question to the real motives of their heart, and that is that they don't want Jesus himself. They just want more of what he can do for them. They want more of the bread that he gave them on the mountainside. And so Jesus says to them, very truly, I tell you, you're, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you, you want more bread. You thought that was a pretty cool thing that happened. It made like some more of that. And you, know, you want more of that material stuff. You don't want me. You only want the tangible gifts that you think you could get from me. And there is a world of difference between those two things. And so Jesus begins to, to point them beyond the tangible, white, wonder bread kinds of gifts to himself as the real substance that they most deeply crave. He's trying to move them beyond, you know, this, I want more bread, I want more bread. Do that again, do that again. That's a, he says, no, what you need is, is me. And so he says to them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And again, Jesus is trying to get them to shift their focus from the material realm to the spiritual realm. He says that you're craving the wrong kind of food. You're, you're, you're working for food that spoils, and you don't even realize that I offer the food of eternal life. And can't we see ourselves in the crowd? We, we are, by nature, drawn to things tangible. It's so much easier just to, to latch on to those things that are material and tangible and physical. We, we gravitate towards the things that provide instant gratification. Uh, to use the language of C.S. Lewis, uh, we're like ignorant children clamoring after mud pies in the street because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And so we go about our time with, as C.S. Lewis says, with, with food and sex and ambition and just so, so entrenched in these things and focused on these things, we can't see beyond them while there is this amazing offer of something infinitely more valuable and greater that we, didn't, we can't even see because we won't lift up our eyes to see it. He says, 
we are far too easily pleased. And what Jesus wants of us is the same thing he wanted for the crowd. He wants us to know the the one thing that is truly satisfying. He wants us to know that if we keep trying to fill that void in our soul with with the earthly breads of entertainment and money and ambition and accomplishment and a hundred other, other earthly things, it will only produce despair. He wants us to discover the infinite joy of real bread, the kind of bread that endures to eternal life. And that brings us then to the second question the crowd asked. When Jesus told them not to work for food that spoils, but to work for food that endures to eternal life, the crowd naturally wants to know, well, what does this work entail? They want to know what they must do to attain what Jesus is talking about. And so they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And and this is just the, the, the way that we are wired to think, isn't it? If there's some benefit to be attained, then there must be something we have to do to, to earn it, to attain it. And, and you know, there ha- what, what can we do to get it? And, it? and it naturally spills over into our understanding of spiritual things. I mean, you, you come across this often in conversation, even among professing Christians. Ask them, you know, do you, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? How do you know that you're going to be in heaven? How do you get to heaven? How do you be assured that you're, you're going to receive this gift of eternal life? You ask so many professing Christians that question, and they start rattling off all the things that they have done. All the things that are on the ledger of works that God requires. Well, I've gone to church for this many years. I've taught Sunday school. I, pr- I pray. I-, I try to read my Bible as much as I can. I-, I try to lead a good life. I try to be a pretty decent person. I'm good to my neighbors, and I, I don't cause much trouble. I- I'm a you know, law-abiding citizen. I'm just a, I try to do as best as I can. I try to teach my kids wrong from right. Well, those are good things but not a single one of them will get you to heaven. And not all of them taken together will get you to heaven. As Paul said, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. There are no works that we can do that are enough to get us into the doorway of heaven. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is so important for us to understand this and to have it deeply ingrained in our hearts and in our minds because we are constantly tempted to return to this way of thinking. Even if we don't realize it or aren't fully conscious of it, we're always good. We, that's where our minds tend to naturally go, that eternal life is somehow attained by what we do. What must we do to do the works God requires? Well, Jesus sets our thinking straight in verse 29. The crowd asks, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus says, well, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The way to eternal life is astoundingly simple. It is to believe in Christ. I mean, we'll say a little bit more a little bit later on about what it means to believe, but for now, suffice it to say that eternal life comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It is so straightforward and simple. As John said in one of his letters, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You want to have assurance of eternal life. Do you have the Son? 
Whereas Paul said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say if you do this for so many years, if you get this mastered over a certain amount of time, if you, if you have enough uh, uh, works on, the, on this side of the scale and enough good things on this side of the scale, then no. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. The only thing needed for eternal life, Jesus says, is faith. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. So having called the crowd to believe, they respond, the crowd responds with a third question. And they say to Jesus, what sign then will you give that that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. If you want us to believe, they say, well, then, then give us a sign. Which is, again, a strange thing to say because John tells us in verse 26 they'd already seen multiple signs. But they want more. They want another sign. They want a specific sign. They want a a sign like their ancestors had, the sign of manna in the wilderness. And maybe it stems from what Jesus did on the mountainside. You know, hey, that was great, Jesus, but, uh, you know, manna, he... You know, you fed 5,000 plus women and children. Well, he fed a whole nation. You, you gave us some, you know, this, this bread was multiplied. Well, well, Moses gave us bread that came from heaven. You fed us for a day. Moses fed us for 40 years. Give us a sign like that. Now, I think behind this question, there's also a, a little insight that might help us to better understand there was a, an expectation among some of the, the Jews at that time that when the Messiah came, he would renew the miracle of the manna. And so just, we see this in some of the later rabbinic writings, uh, by late uh, end of the first century and, and beyond that. But, um, but even before that, in, in Jesus' day, that expectation was there among many of the Jews. And so uh, one of the rabbinic writings said this, As the former Redeemer, in other words Moses, caused manna to descend, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he's going to do again what Moses did and renew the sign of the manna. Another of the rabbinic writings a little bit later said, It shall come to pass that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. And so it's against uh, the backdrop of this expectation uh, that we have to hear the crowd's request for a sign. If you're the one sent by God, if you're the Messiah who, who was to come, Jesus, then, then prove it with the renewal of the manna. Show us some bread from heaven, and then we will believe. But again, Jesus knew their hearts. And it wasn't for lack of evidence that they didn't believe. It was that their hearts were dead in their sin and they had not been made alive. That their hearts were no different really than the hearts of the the rich man's family in Luke chapter 16. You remember that story of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man sits at his table and Lazarus is a beggar at his gate and they both die and the rich man goes to Hades and and Lazarus goes up to, to heaven where he's by Abraham's side. 
And the rich man cried out to Abraham from the torments of Hades, begging him to send Lazarus to warn his family who was still alive on earth, to warn them so they wouldn't end up in Hades too. And Abraham said, no, they, they have Moses and they have the prophets. And, 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 Ab- and the rich man said, no, but if, they, if somebody comes from the dead to them, they will believe. And do you remember what Abraham said? He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, they don't need more signs. And so too with a crowd clamoring after Jesus in Capernaum. They don't need more signs. They don't need a renewal of the manna. They need to have their eyes opened to see who Jesus is and their hearts awakened to receive him. It's the only thing they need. And so Jesus points them again to himself and he says, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You, you think Moses is the standard in bread? That the man in the wilderness was, was there only to point to me. The bread in the wilderness was just a precursor to the true bread from heaven. Your ancestors ate the man in the desert and yet they died. But I'm giving you, I'm offering you, showing you the kind of bread that brings eternal life. A bread that so far surpasses the manna. And that brings us then to the crowd's request and Jesus' climactic response. They say to Jesus, Sir, always give us this bread. It's an odd way to state it, and it's an odd use of the word always, but I think it just gets at their eagerness. You know, oh, this kind of bread, always give it to us. Not just, not, just, not just sometimes, not just a little bit, always give it to us. We want it, we want it now and always and as much as we can. Just like the Samaritan woman at the well, their hearts and their minds are still focused on the physical. When Jesus, if you remember from John 4, when Jesus offered the Samaritan woman the water of eternal life, she thought he was offering physical water from a well that would never run dry. Give me this water, she said, that I don't have to come back here with a bucket again and again. And now when Jesus offers the crowd the bread of eternal life, they think that he's offering physical bread that will never run out. Lord, always give us this bread. And so Jesus responds by telling them very plainly what he meant, and he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never and the never in both of those statements are emphatic. It would be more literal to say, never, whoever comes to me will never ever go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never ever be thirsty. When Jesus says he is the bread of life, he is saying that he is our true sustenance. He's the only thing that truly satisfies. He is the only source of eternal life. He is the fulfillment of what the psalmist said in Psalm 73 when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And he's the one the prophet Isaiah spoke of. When he said, Why spend, your, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? 
Why not come to the one thing, the only thing that, that does satisfy? Why keep spending yourselves on those things that fail? He's the one about whom Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else, he says, is garbage in comparison to this. And he's the one about whom Peter would say just a few verses later in John 6, when all the crowd had listened to the teaching of Jesus, and they're like, man, this... This isn't quite what we thought it was. He's now saying some weird stuff about coming to him, ingesting him, eating his flesh, and that's eh, a hard teaching. I don't think we want anything to do with that. And so this massive crowd that had started dwindles to just a few. They're all walking away. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus says to his 12, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. As the bread of life, Jesus is our alpha and our omega and everything in between. He's the only food that can satisfy our deepest hunger, the only water that can quench our deepest thirst, and the only substance that can fill that God-shaped void in our souls. And this is why Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never, ever go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never, ever be thirsty. Until we come to him and receive him in true faith, we will keep filling ourselves with the wonder breads of the world that can never satisfy. It is in him alone that our deepest longings and cravings are fulfilled. And if it is true that coming to him and believing in him, which, which incidentally are John uses synonymously here, those are parallel statements, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So coming and believing are used synonymously so that to come to Jesus is to believe in him, to believe in him is to come to him. And if it's true that coming to him and believing in him is the only way to receive eternal life, it then begs the question, well, how then do we come to believe? Well, you see, in our sinful nature, we are dead in our sins and have no desire at all to come to Christ or to believe in him. We have no, nothing within us that would attract us to him, that would move us to him. It is only by the Father's divine initiative and choosing that we come. As Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And he says it even more forcefully in verse 44 when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the only way we, we come to Christ. This is the only way that we can, we can ever believe in him and put our trust in him. You, you, you cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws you. And if the Father draws you, you cannot but come to Christ. But that raises then one last question. If the Father draws us to Christ and gives us this gift of eternal life, then how can we be sure not to lose the gift that has been given? And again, Jesus has an answer. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And again, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all, that he has, all those he has given me. The gift of eternal life is secured not by our grip on Christ, but by Christ's grip on us. And there's much more that we could say about that, but it's not 
the main point of where we want to focus this morning is that would be a whole other sermon for a whole other time. So let me ask you a question. What do you hear in these words of Jesus? I thought about that this past week. What, is, what are we meant to hear? What did Jesus want the crowd to hear? And what does John want his audience to hear in the recording of this event? Because that's what we really need to get at if we want to understand this correctly. Well, what John intends us to hear, I believe, is a clear call to receive Christ. To stop trying to find our satisfaction in the white wonder breads of the world and to see and receive Christ as the only bread that truly satisfies. The only source of eternal life. In fact, this, is, this ties in, uh, this, this is the whole purpose of why John wrote his gospel. John tells us very plainly at the end of his gospel why he wrote it. This is why I'm writing this all down. There's a, pur- there's a purpose for it. There's something in it. And everything he does in his whole gospel revolves around that central purpose. And this is the central purpose of John's gospel. He said, these are written that you may believe that Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. The early uh, 20th century missionary, Sadhu Sundar Singh, um, tried to say that several times fast in a row. Sadhu Sundar Singh was distributing gospels in the central provinces of Asia uh, in the uh, early um, 1900s. And he came to a group of unbelievers there on the street, and he uh, handed them, uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of them, he handed them the gospel of John. And said, you know, I'd like you to read this and take it and, and just hand it out to them. One of the men in the group got really hostile and angry because they were, you know, they had their own religion and they wanted nothing to do with, with Christianity. And so he took, he took the John's gospel, he tore out the pages, and then he took the pages and he tore them to shreds and he threw them uh, on the ground in front of uh, Singh's feet. And Singh thought, well, this is probably not going to be very fruitful. <laughs> and so he, uh, he kind of walked away. And then later on that day, uh, a man was walking by, and he walked by that spot where he saw all these, this paper on the ground, and, and he wondered what it was. So he bent down, and he picked up just one little shred of paper. And he picked it up, and he looked at it, and, and there was something written on that, that shred of paper that really intrigued him and captivated him, and it was just one single phrase. It was the bread of life. And he had no idea what it meant. He had no idea what, you know, where it came from, but he thought, man. He, and the more he looked at that, the more it, it, it penetrated his heart, and he wanted that. Even though he didn't know what it, but what it was, but it, that, that phrase, man, the, the bread of life. If there's something that, that, that's the bread of life, I, I want to know what that is. I, I want that. And so he, he took it, and he put it in his pocket, and then he, he went around asking people, and he showed it to the, the bunch of people, and he said, do you, do you know what this is, the bread of life? And nobody knew what it was, because there was Christianity hadn't spread very far in those provinces yet, and so they weren't familiar with the Christian Bible. And so he kept going, and, and he just kept it in his pocket day after day after day, until finally, one day, he pulled it out, and he said to someone, do you know what this is? And the, and the man happened to have familiarity with the Christian Bible, and he said, yeah, that, that comes from the Christian Bible. You want nothing to do with that, because it will defile you. But now he knew where it came from, and so he went and he found and he bought a New Testament, and he had somebody show him where that phrase was found, and he read these verses, these words of Jesus in John chapter 6, and as he read them, the Spirit penetrated his heart, 
and filled him. And he received Christ as his Savior and his Lord and as the bread of life. And he was so deeply satisfied that it changed him forever. And he became a gospel preacher and a gospel missionary ministering to people in the central provinces of Asia, leading many, many more people to Christ. Do you know Jesus as the bread of life? Have you done more than simply believe in your mind who he is? Have you received him in true faith? To use the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, true faith is not only a knowledge and a conviction about who Jesus is, but it is a deep-rooted assurance in the heart that I have received him, that I have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation through him. To receive Jesus as the bread of life is to take him into your soul as the all-satisfying, life-giving treasure that he is. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? If you haven't already, come away from the breads of the world and open your heart to Christ and he will taste and see the one bread that truly satisfies. Come to him, and you will never go hungry. Let's bow together. Oh Lord Jesus, you are truly the bread of life, the living bread that came from heaven to give life to the world, the only source of eternal life, the only thing that truly satisfies. Oh, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning in this time of of silent prayer and surrender, Lord, may your Spirit draw us away from those things that we are chasing and, and searching for and trying to find satisfaction in those wonder breads of the world that always fail to satisfy. Lord, show us in our hearts what they are. And give us a renewed hunger and interest and and passion and desire for you as the true bread of life. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning. Oh, Lord, if we are here this morning and our hearts have not yet been awakened to true faith, I pray, O oh Lord, that through these words of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do that work of awakening and regeneration in our hearts that we might see 
and desire you as the bread of life. And Lord, if our hearts have already been awakened, but maybe we've grown numb or complacent or dull, and our spiritual hunger has waned because we have been feeding on so many other things, then I pray, O Lord, that you would deepen our faith this morning, that you would renew our hunger for you. O Lord, draw us to you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.